0: at science.org news. Scroll down and click subscribe on the right side. That's science.org news. Click subscribe. This is a science podcast for January 13th, 2023. I'm Sarah Crespi. Please take a moment to fill in our podcast survey. You'll see it as a pop-up at science.org podcast, or you can find it on the show notes for the episode. First up this week, clouds and hazes are blocking our view of exoplanets. In turn, Zach Savitsky joins me to talk about what scientists are doing to take these obstructing substances into account and improve our view of far-off worlds. After that, we have the voices of the next generation with producer Kevin McLean and letters editor Jennifer Sills. Four times a year, science invites young scientists from all over the world to weigh in on a question this time, you'll hear answers to one about fruitful failures. So after celebrating the James Webb Space Telescope and its ability to look far, far, far back into the earliest universe, and also to help us look for habitable exoplanets, this was honored as science's 2022 Breakthrough of the Year, our news intern, Zach Savitsky, is here to talk about an overlooked problem. Some of these exoplanets are just too hazy, too cloudy for us to see much of them and their atmospheres, even with the JWST. Okay, Zach, how are you doing?
1: Doing well. How are you, Sarah?
0: I'm good. I'm like, how much should I temper my enthusiasm for what this space telescope can do for exoplanets? You know, why can't it give us the info we need to know what's happening in their atmospheres?
1: This comes down to a few things. So, basically, the best tool that astronomers have for looking into these exoplanets, which are planets that orbit stars other than our sun, is to wait for them to pass in front of their stars. And the starlight basically filters through their atmospheres and then comes to Earth. And not all of that light makes it to Earth because some of it gets absorbed by the molecules that are in the atmospheres of these exoplanets. So that's basically, that's the goal. However, as we've seen with some of the early exoplanet data that has trickled in from other telescopes, The signals that they're expecting to see with these dips in light at characteristic frequencies of light aren't as strong as they necessarily anticipated. The explanation for this, for the most part, is that there is this layer of aerosols surrounding the planets, blocking us from seeing into their atmospheres.
0: So the light, we would expect it to be, you know, oh, there's methane and it's absorbing. And so when we see the spectrum of light coming through, there's a a blank spot or an extra strong spot at the methane place. We can't see that because there are aerosols in the atmosphere of these planets. Okay, but what what is an aerosol? How is that different than a molecule that we want to see?
1: Yeah, so aerosols are just molecules that are suspended in gas. There are two main types of aerosols that we're talking about here. There are clouds and hazes. And generally speaking, clouds are the aerosols that form through phase changes. So like condensation, just like clouds here on Earth. And hazes are produced through photochemistry. That's when light hits molecules and breaks it into new molecules and then those recombine. By definition, you know, those are a lot more complex molecules. And it also makes their effect on a spectrum of light a lot more difficult to parse.
0: And is this something that we would notice? I mean, obviously we see it on Earth, but what about the other planets in our solar system? Are hazes and clouds common for those?
1: Every planet and moon in our solar system that has an atmosphere has clouds and hazes in its atmosphere you'd expect that this is something that astronomers would have anticipated for exoplanets as well. And some did, but there was really a big gap in understanding how this would impact the spectra that they received.
0: Yeah, I mean, I don't know if this is irony or what, but like we put telescopes in space, so our atmosphere, particularly clouds and hazes, don't interfere with what we're seeing. But when we go to look at other planets, same problem. We're looking at them from the other side.
1: Right, exactly.
0: What are some of the ways that With the instruments that we have now, we're looking at spectra, you know, what can we do to figure this out?
1: This traces its roots back to planetary science. There are clouds and hazes on other planets and bodies in the solar system, and people have been studying those for decades. So the effort to simulate these aerosols in the lab started more or less with actually Carl Sagan and his colleague, Bishan Kare, at Cornell University.
0: They were interested in hazes and clouds?
1: Yes. Hazes specifically and for Titan, which is a moon of Saturn. What they did is they built this chamber. They pumped a bunch of gases that they expected to be in the atmosphere of Titan. And then they zapped them with light that was supposed to simulate a star. And they produced these these sticky grains. They got these like brown residues that accumulated on disks. And they called them tholins.
0: These residues are a result of Photochemistry. So does that mean that they're hazes collected onto these disks?
1: They're analogs of hazes, at least. Yeah.
0: And why are they called Tholins?
1: The runner-up name was Star-Tar, which I think is much cooler. <laughs> <laughs> but they ended up going with Tholins after the Greek word for muddy.
0: Yeah, less inspiring. This is something that happened, I guess, I'm assuming in the 70s, if Sagan was involved? Yeah, late 70s. OK, so they started making basically imitation hazes based on what they knew about Titan at the time. Do we have a lot of research data based on hazes, you know, or simulated hazes since that time?:
1: No. So the data set that Sagan and Kare produced, which they published in 1984, is first off, incredibly extensive. Since then, nobody has replicated the entire wavelength range that they used to make these measurements. And also, this is just historically a pretty underfunded part of science. Laboratory astrophysics is something that has been difficult to get a ton of money to do. So for those two reasons, people are still using this same data set from, you know, 30 years ago to not only analyze things that have much higher resolution than the data that was taken, but also for completely different environments than the Titan that was simulated by Sagan and Kari.
0: Oh, right, because Titan is a moon, but we've got exoplanets that are super Earth, hot Jupiters, all these interesting, unexpected combinations. When Sagan was doing this, we didn't know we had not precisely located any exoplanets.
1: I had the chance to speak with a postdoc of Carl Sagan's. His name is Gene McDonald. And he told me about what it was like to work in the lab at the time on these experiments and basically said, you know, at the time, nobody was talking about exoplanets, so we didn't even think about doing these for exoplanet conditions. I also wanted to add that not only is Titan a different size than some of the exoplanets that we're talking about here, but Titan is an icy planet. It is cold. And the exoplanets that we're looking at, well, they come in a variety of different compositions and temperature regimes. The ones that JWST is most apt to detect are the hot ones because they're much closer to their sun, so they, they orbit them faster.
0: Oh, and so that means we get more peaks, more chances to look at their atmosphere with the light passing through it. Exactly. This does seem kind of like you would be stuck a little bit to try to emulate atmospheric conditions of an exoplanet when really we want to know about its atmosphere. We don't know about its atmosphere.
1: There's this paradox when they're they're trying to create these particles that are in the atmospheres of planets that we have no idea what they're like. Right. Yeah. So so how do you do that? This all got started from a collaboration between planetary theorists and experimentalists. And so Nicole Lewis, who is an astronomer at Cornell University, she was one of the theorists who was working on these exoplanets and noticed that they were going to have this problem with the hazes. And so she turned to her friend from graduate school named Sarah Horst, who is at Johns Hopkins University. And Sarah was working on building one of these Titan chambers, much like Sagan and Kare's back in the day. And Nicole went to Sarah and said, Sarah, Do you think that you could modify your experiment to do environments that we expect to see on these exoplanets? So much hotter and involving different types of gases.
0: So don't emulate a moon that we know about. Let's go for something that we don't really know anything
1: about. Exactly, yeah. So it was difficult, but eventually she sold her on it and they got to work.
0: Yeah, you described some of the difficulties that come with making one of these haze chambers. Can you talk about some of those challenges?
1: For one, we're not talking about like Two gases, carbon dioxide and methane, which were primarily used for Titan, they're mixing eight or nine different combinations of gases. And some of those are really hard to get out of the chambers. You know, water vapor in particular is really sticky to these metallic surfaces inside. The water also, they have to cool down to a specific temperature so that it vaporizes into the chamber at the right pressure. And so in order to do that, they have to use a whole stash of dry ice. And the postdoc has to keep going in repeatedly every few hours through the night to replace the dry ice. They also had to find a way to heat up the chamber up to over 500 degrees Celsius. So,
0: Oh, wow. And this is gathering maybe information about a haze for one specific set of conditions, but there are just so many options now, right?
1: So when Nicole and Sarah got together, they discussed this question of, How do we choose which atmospheres to recreate if we don't know what they look like in the first place? What they did is they built this grid that spanned different temperatures that they were expecting the planets to have and different bulk compositions of the planets. And then they ran these models to figure out what atmospheric gases they expect to be present. And so those are the ones that they used in these experiments.
0: So they tried to cover a big swath of territory. Do we know what they've learned?
1: Right off the bat, they could tell that these tholins that they were producing were very different from the ones that Sagan and Kari produced in the 70s and 80s. For one, when they took them out of the chamber, Sarah and her team saw that these were a whole rainbow. Some of them were gold, some of them were green, some of them were the original brownish color from before. That tells you not just that these have different compositions, but that they have different what we call optical properties. So they interact with light in a different way than the original tholins did. And that's really the crucial thing to figuring out what their impact is on the light that's coming to us.
0: So are they taking spectra as well as collecting the tholins from these chambers?
1: Yes. They like scrape the chambers to get these tholins out. For some of them, they measure like the size of the particles, which also has an effect on the way that they interact with light. And they measure, they, they run them through a spectrometer. And so they're able to see the specific wavelengths at which they scatter and absorb light.
0: Now we're starting to build up, you know, if we understand what the hazes are doing, then we can kind of look at that as well as anything else that we can see from the contents of the atmosphere.
1: And so the goal here is to build a whole database of different optical properties for different types of hazes. So what astronomers do when they're trying to make sense of a spectrum that comes in from an exoplanet crossing its star is they produce these predictive spectra if this planet has carbon dioxide, methane, and carbon monoxide in its atmosphere, then we should expect to see a spectra that looks like this. And they can also add in little caveats of, you know, okay, well, if we expect it to look like this, but there's also a cloud, then what will it look like? Or if there's also a haze, then what will it look like? And crucially, they wanna be able to say, if there's this kind of haze, then what will it look like?
0: Really interesting. Is this haze database already useful? Are scientists already able to access it and get help figuring out what's going on in exoplanet atmospheres?
1: Basically, from the 12 or so conditions that Sarah Horsch and her team were able to produce in their chamber, they have measured the optical properties from two of them. And they are about to release those optical property data as a preprint. We're imminently awaiting those results. And astronomers are very excited because they'll get to plug those into their models immediately.
0: Yeah, no more Titan.
1: <laughs> exactly.
0: I guess we should touch on biosignatures and habitability. That is one of the goals of this kind of exoplanet research is to say, well, there's some chemical signatures here in the atmosphere that make us think that an organism, a living thing had to be
1: involved in order for them to exist. Giada Arney, who's at uh, NASA Goddard Space Flight Center, she's been using these models to look at the effects of different hazes on the habitability of a planet. The biosignatures that astronomers are often looking for are things like methane and carbon dioxide and, and oxygen and certain combinations of these gases. And what Arne found is that some of these hazes that are really critical to protecting life on the planet require life to actually form the haze as well. So if you see a signature of a haze with so much methane in it that the methane has to come from living organisms, like the one on the Archean Earth did, she thinks, that that itself could be a biosignature. And that if we detected a haze like that on another planet, not only would this allow us to figure out the composition of that atmosphere that gave rise to the haze, but it also could point us to life being hidden underneath the haze on its surface.
0: What drew your attention to the story?
1: The first thing that got me interested in the story was learning about the infamous observation of an exoplanet called GJ 1214b. And it is basically the most mysterious planet that's out there for us, because when astronomers were first starting to look at exoplanet transits, as they call them, GJ 1214b emerged as a perfect example of a way to use this technique to probe the composition of a planet. And they were super excited to do these detections, and they got back the results, and they were completely flat, essentially. No spikes. No spikes, yeah.
0: No evidence of absorption or, or reflection.
1: Exactly. And one of my sources referred to it as the most expensive flat line in the history of science.
0: Uh, <laughs> so hazes and clouds messing with our space telescopes.
1: Exactly, yeah. And the cool part for this story is that all of these things are coming together at once. You know, they're finally able to do these experimental simulations of exoplanets. And we're finally able to actually get high enough resolution detections to figure out what's in these exoplanet atmospheres. And crucially, they're finally coming back to GJ 1214b in particular. The same teams that were doing the original analyses that came back with squat, they're able to use these new techniques that James Webb Space Telescope allows them to do and to make use of these new optical properties from the laboratory experiments to finally figure out what are the secrets that have been hidden from us for over a decade.
0: Thank you so much, Zach.
1: Thank you, Sarah. Always a pleasure.
0: Zach Savitsky is a news intern for science and soon to move over to intern at Quanta. You can find a link to the story we discussed at science.org podcast. Stay tuned for a segment from producer Kevin McLean and letters editor Jennifer Sills with answers to the Next Gen Voices question, what have you learned in your career from failure? This week's episode is brought to you in part by the Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology. Are you or one of your colleagues doing great neuroscience? If so, then we encourage you to apply for the prestigious Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology, an international prize which honors young scientists for outstanding neurobiological research based on methods of molecular, cellular, systems, or organismic biology. Submissions are due June 15th. Visit science.org slash
2: eppendorf to apply today. Throughout the year, Science puts out a call to the next generation of scientists to share their experiences and stories. These Next Gen Voices essays provide a window into the world of scientists just getting their start. Jennifer Sills is the letters editor at Science, and she's in charge of the Next Gen Voices section, putting out questions, reading through all of the submissions, and really keeping an eye on what's going on for early career scientists. We're going to talk with her in a little bit, but I'm really excited that since it is called Next Gen Voices, we got some of the most recent authors to send in voice memos to tell their stories for the podcast. These essays ran in last week's issue of Science, and the theme was the fruits of failure. Jennifer posed the questions, are you grateful for a setback that you experienced? What mistake did you make and what good came from it? And the next-gen scientists had a lot to say.
3: Hello, I'm Jackson, and I attend the University of Pennsylvania. In high school, I applied for this research summer program, and when the acceptances came out, I didn't get one. And then about a week or two later, the program started calling me, saying that I never accepted the invitation to attend, and I was very confused, I realized I just never saw the acceptance email and so we were supposed to fill out a form on which labs we wanted to be matched with and these sorts of things. But since I never saw the email, I missed the window to apply and I ended up getting auto-matched to this venom lab. And how do you do research on venom? You have to go to a forest, pick up spiders, extract their venom, and then do research on it. And that was terrifying to me. Uh, But it ended up being a magnificent experience that um, I'll certainly never forget. So it ended up turning out fine. That's my story.
2: All right, we've got letters editor Jennifer Sills here with us. Jennifer, welcome back to the Science Podcast. Thank you. Now, first off, I love this story from Jackson. I totally get the horror of missing an email and missing some sort of opportunity. But you know, it sounded like things actually worked out pretty well for him.
4: I find this so relatable. Just you didn't see the email. And then does it change the course of your life? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) I love his perspective, though, because personally, I don't know if I would take so well to collecting spiders in the dark forest. But in his written piece, He talks about the importance of the enthusiasm of the leaders of the program and the mentors that he found there. And I think that's also a really important piece where sometimes it's not as important what you're doing as who you're doing it with and how they're conveying the field to you and passing along their enthusiasm.
2: Yeah, I think back and having an opportunity to meet people that were really excited about what they were doing was really, really helpful early on for me, for sure. Tell me a little bit more about NextGen Voices. How long has this section been running?
4: The first NextGen ran in January of 2012. So this is our 11th year. So we run four NextGens a year that are open to the public and we publicize them on Twitter and on the website and in the letters section, and anyone can write in, and then I select some of the best essays and run them all together. In addition to that, sometimes when science runs a special issue on a particular theme, we will run a next-gen survey, and for those... I only ask the people who have been selected for previous next-gen surveys.
2: So you, you kind of have this like next-gen community that you've been building for the last 11 years or so.
5: That's
4: right.
2: Should we listen to another one? Let's do it. All right.
5: Hi there. My name is Dr. Ash Heim, and I'm currently a postdoc in biology education at Cornell University. I think a lot of people assume that if you're in the field of biology education, you've always been in that field, but that's not the case. As a first-gen student, I didn't really know what career options were available to me after graduating with my bachelor's in zoology. I applied to a PhD program in zoology across the country and was accepted. I was so excited, but I never really took the time to consider what my end goal was. Only after my first year in my new program did I realize the research I was conducting wasn't what I wanted to be doing, and I began to doubt whether I was really cut out for grad school. That is, until a mentor recognized my passion for teaching as a grad teaching assistant and recommended looking into discipline-based education research or deeper programs. Only after I was accepted into a PhD program in biology education, did I acknowledge how wonderful research could be when I was studying something that I truly cared about. I identify as a discipline-based education researcher in biology now, and I really feel like my research can improve the undergrad learning experience. So I guess the moral of my story is, don't be afraid to change paths, whether you're in academia or not.
2: I really like this one. This one stood out to me just because... You know, there's so much that you don't really know about until you're kind of in the midst of things. And in this case, it was something where she didn't even know this field that was right for her existed until she was in this other field and felt like she was in the wrong place.
4: We hear from a lot of young scientists who say, I thought I was going to be a PI in a lab and that's how it was going to be. And then I realized that's not where my passion was. I think there are a lot of examples of the greater scientific ecosystem where people can find their place. And sometimes it takes a mistake or a setback to inspire someone to reevaluate what might be right for them.
2: What do you like about editing this section in in particular?
4: We have this community of scientists and not just the next gen community, but the broader community of young scientists today. They are diverse, they're creative, and they have a lot of different perspectives that I'm not sure you always see in the pages of a journal like Science. And so we really wanted to make sure that there was a place for these young scientists to share what they were thinking with the world. These are the experiences that young scientists are having. And I think some of the challenges they face are different today than maybe older generations of scientists are familiar with.
2: Yeah, that's cool. I I was really excited to see what the most recent prompt was, because I've never met a scientist who, you know, didn't have a good failure story at some sort of stage of their careers, but I think it can be particularly devastating or memorable early on. Did that sort of factor into this recent fruits of failure prompt?
4: So this prompt... I think was the result of seeing this theme come up again and again in different ways from different angles. We would always receive a couple of responses that had to do with failure and the importance of treating failure as part of the learning experience and not being overwhelmed. One of the things that has really become clear through these surveys is that young scientists are really wondering where do they belong are they going to go on and become part of the scientific community there are not as many scientific jobs traditional scientific jobs as there used to be and there is a lot of doubt among young scientists who are really passionate about their fields thinking should i be here am i enough do i have the skills do i have what it takes Is there going to be a place for me? This is a really important topic, I thought, because this is the kind of thing that can make a young scientist say, I give up. Whether it's a careless error, like missing an email, or whether it's a setback, like not getting a job, these are the moments where people take stock of their lives and say, have these been the the right decisions for me? Maybe I should look at something else. And I think it would be a real shame for people not to, to not be exposed to perspectives that say, no, this is part of the journey. Don't give up.
2: Yeah, that theme of not giving up definitely comes up in a lot of these responses. I really like this next one.
5: Hi, my name is Camilla Fonseca. I'm a biotechnology technology student at the University of Sao Paulo. There was a moment in my graduation, I realized that it should take two extra years of college to keep up an adequate academic performance. But most importantly, I wanted to prioritize my physical and mental health. However, an unnecessary feeling of guilt and failure started to sink in. But for the first time, I had the time to apply for internships, and I got into one about science communication. Sometimes saying no to certain things as graduating in the expected time, can imply saying yes to others as graduating in the right time for me. And the best part is while doing something I love, communicate science in a simple, entertaining, and useful way to people. Yeah.
4: I really like how she points out that not only does she deserve to take the time that she needs, which is Already, something that so many people have trouble believing is that you are as important, if not more important, than this career that you are trying to build for yourself. And so, taking time when you need it is absolutely something you should do. And I love how she points out that not only does she deserve it, but it is providing benefits to her that she has more opportunities now because she made this decision.
2: Yeah, absolutely. That's that's a really great point. How do you come up with the prompts?
4: We want to know what this group of scientists is thinking, what they think is important, the challenges they're facing. And we want these prompts to be broad enough that any young scientist could have a response and an opinion. And so we want the prompts to be general enough to appeal to scientists in every field in every country, from every background.
2: Have any like favorites come up? Like any favorites stick out in your mind from the years?
4: My favorite ones, I think, are the, the creative ones. I asked young scientists, what is a course that is missing from science education today? And I had them write it as if they were writing in a course catalog. And so I actually put together a course catalog that had courses about mental health and about failure and about how to balance your your science career with other priorities so i i think this this community is really creative they're really optimistic they're really passionate and i think any question that can tap into that enthusiasm is one that's really fun to read
2: Okay, I think we've got one more, and this was another one that I really enjoyed.
6: I am Divyansh Agarwal. When I think back to my favorite mistake in science so far in my career, I think back to a course I had signed up for as a freshman in college. It was being taught at the Peabody Museum. And when I signed up for the course, I was hoping for a research experience. However, to my complete surprise, I learned that it was actually an intensive writing seminar. I call it a mistake because, you know, it ended up being a seminar where I got a C and I thought my entire undergraduate career was doomed. But importantly, that course exposed me to an area of science that proved so invaluable in my career. The seminar taught me that storytelling is central to sharing scientific discoveries. It taught me that every good scientific story keeps in mind the reader's experience. And were it not for that seminar, I honestly would have never developed a passion for science writing because it wasn't on my radar. I would have not taken journalism internships or quite frankly, become as thoughtful of a scientist.
2: That was interesting to hear his uh, perspective. Have you ever accidentally signed up for a course or something like that? It sounds like, (laughs) sounds like a a sort of a, a little bit of a nightmare, but you know, something good comes out of it.
4: Yeah, well, I think you also see there a focus on grades. He mentions that he got a C and he thought that was the end. And I think that's true for a lot of people, especially a lot of high achievers through high school when they get to college and get their first B or their first C or their first D, and they think that's it. And there are people who might think that after one grade that is not what they expect, that means that they should not be doing this, that they should not pursue this career. And as this scientist points out, that's not at all how the story went for him.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Well, Jennifer, thank you so much for joining us. This is a lot of fun to to hear, hear straight from you about what the process has been like.
4: Thank you for having me.
2: Jennifer Sills is the letters editor at Science. We'll put a link to the Next Gen Voices section in the show notes, and you can follow Next Gen Voices on Twitter with the hashtag NextGenSci, and keep an eye out for the next prompt.
0: And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions, you can write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. Or better yet, take our audience survey. That's at the link science.org slash podcast as a pop-up, or you can find a link to the survey in the episode description. You can listen to the show on the science website at science.org slash podcast, or you can search for Science Magazine on any podcasting app. This show was edited and produced by me, Sarah Crespi, with production help from Podigy, Kevin McQueen, and Megan Cantwell. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science, but did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org A-A-A-S join. That's aaasorg join.